overkill, profusion, excess, surplus, too much, abundance. When it comes to the body of Christ, God is just a big show-off, heaping spiritual gifts on his people in an embarrassment of riches. I'm Laura Pace. And I'm Jessica Denny. You're listening to Embarrassment of Riches, where we explore the wisdom, passion, power, and grace that God has showered on the women of Dallas Bible. Good evening, and welcome to Embarrassment of Riches. Hey, Laura. Hello. We, it is the evening. It is the evening. <laughs> even even if even if we're not live, we're not live. But it is the evening. Yes. And you prefer it this way. I do. I do. I'm. I don't. I don't. I, I don't do a, a great 10 a.m. start. Uh, Kyle. Kyle says people will ask me if I'm a morning person or a night owl, and um, Kyle will laugh because I am neither of those things. <laughs> he says, but I can rock 10 to two like nobody's business. <laughs> I think you're an evening person. I'm an evening person, really. I'm, but I'm not a night owl. I want to go to bed at ten, but I'm really good in the evening. So it gets me warmed up. And we we just got back from vacation, so I'm all relaxed. And a Laura, vacation that was an hour difference, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, we were in Mountain Time in in Utah, so it was it was quite Fancy. lovely, and I had a, a great time. Well, um, our guest tonight. I almost didn't get a hold of because I had been text, not texting, I had been emailing don.freeland at gmail.com or something to that effect. And um, she was not responding. And I was, I was like, I it wouldn't have been the first time someone yeah. wasn't interested in. Yeah. And on. so I'm like, maybe she's not interested. But I, I texted Mary Yarborough and I was like, hey, do you have Don's contact information? She sent me her, um, phone number. And so I texted her and I said, Hey, I've sent you an email. I'm not sure if you've checked it. And, and <laughs> Don did not receive the email, although she said that there's a, a sweet little Mormon girl <laughs> that, that receives those emails because she and she and that, that girl share a very similar email. Um, so and have I did corresponded in the past. I have corresponded in the past. She's Don Freeland too, as well. Mm-hmm. And so our middle, I don't have a middle initial on my email, but she does. And somehow... And that's the only difference. That's the only difference. So it took us a while to figure out why I was being invited to Sister So-and-So's gathering, but we finally <laughs> figured it out. So I told Don I wasn't sure which one of them was going to show up tonight. <laughs> but we're going to have a guest. <laughs> we're going to have a guest. It's going to be interesting. So anyway, today we have Don Freeland with us. Welcome, Don. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, like your upbringing, how you came to Christ, you you know, just the, you know, the broad strokes. Broad strokes. Okay. And you're an artist, so you know what that means. I do. (laughs) Use a big brush. Um, I grew up in the mountains of Upper East Tennessee, and if you're from Tennessee, you understand that East Tennessee and Upper East Tennessee are two different worlds. You're up next to Virginia and North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. My grandfather inherited his land from his father, who got his from his father, who got his from his father. And his, my grandfather's section was divided between his nine children. So 
I grew up surrounded by relatives. And in the I middle of... I just came of, from a family reunion, so God bless you. <laughs> in the middle of that little community, my grandfather built a church. Mm. So every most everyone went to church except my parents. So I was sent with an aunt to church and heard the stories and um, loved my aunt very much. Um, she was my, she and my uncle were my safe places. My parents were great. They were just professionals in a world where there weren't that many professionals. Mm. So they were not as available. Um, when I was 15, my aunt had ovarian cancer and died. Mm -hmm. And I was totally devastated and angry at God because she loved God. And how could he let her suffer? How could, how mm. could this happen? And really, it was, how could this happen to me? <laughs> how could he take her out of my life? Um, so the next year, I graduated from high school and went away to school. And still pretty angry, didn't want anything to do with God. Um, met some girls who began inviting me to church. That wasn't an interest. Some other girls kept inviting me to a college where this man was speaking. So he sounded interesting, and I went. After about two years of going to visit when this person would come to speak, I um, realized that I wanted to know this person, this Jesus person. Mm. The man who was speaking's name was Francis Schaeffer. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, wow. <laughs> and the lectures that I had the privilege of hearing later became his books. Um, so it was quite a, a heritage I'm very thankful for. So I came to know the Lord my second year of university. Um, I was in nursing. I am a nurse. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, my um, specialty was neuro-ICU. I was a neurology nurse. And after about 15 years, I decided nursing was not my calling mm. so I um, we moved to Japan with my husband's job and I began to take some art classes and then we came back I worked in, for a pediatrician who wanted me to get my nurse practitioners and I was seriously considering it but then he sold his practice and went to the mission field and so I went back to school and studied design and I've been working in art since. How did you and Butch meet? <laughs> I was working as a nurse in upstate New York at a camp named Word of Life. And he was in officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Camp was full. He came down to visit a friend. I had to stay in the infirmary. And I was had gone there between after I graduated from nursing school. <clears throat> because one of the women who was helping me grow said this would be a good place for me to go. They had a training program that taught you how to, to study the scriptures and um, got you in the habit of memorizing the Bible and how to share your faith. And I felt like I really needed those practical skills, tool sets. And uh, what I didn't know was that Butch... <laughs> had been involved in setting up that program four years before. And he had come to the camp to see the 
man that he knew when he was there. And I became interested in that process, and that process was connected to the organization, the Navigators. Mm. And so then we met in August. <laughs> he asked me to marry him on the phone in January. Oh, wow, <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> How romantic. We had seen each other for about 72 hours. And I said, yes. We now, Butch's, Butch's version of that is he couldn't wait any longer. Yes, I know. He's dear. <laughs> but we got married in June, and we just celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. And I remember walking up the aisle thinking, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> Hopefully you haven't been asking yourself that since then. Oh, there have been moments. <laughs> I, I wish I could remember. There's like a line in... Um, Pride and Prejudice, where uh, Elizabeth Bennett, the main character, is giving Charlotte Lucas, her friend, a hard time because she's marrying her oogie cousin, Mr. Collins. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she hardly knows him. And Anyway, um, Charlotte says something very funny about um, how it, she thinks it's a, to your advantage to not know someone very well before you marry them. There's probably a good point to that. <laughs> or you'd never get married. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about Butch was when I first I had first saw him, I had been off the island on my day off. It was an island. And I was with a friend. We saw these people walking down to the boat. And I saw him, and I said, well, he's an interesting-looking character. And then... Um, High praise. <laughs> um, In I, what way was he interesting? Was he interesting like Kyle's dad, who was 6'3 and wore a cape <laughs> in, uh, in no. the, on the streets of Altus, he, Oklahoma? Is interesting like that or No, a this was way? a very conservative Christian camp, and he had a scruffy-looking beard and a backpack on his back and... Uh, pair of old ratty look kind of hippie-ish he didn't look like a hippie because he was in the navy but he uh, didn't look like he stepped off a conservative christian campus either so i uh went over on the boat and a guy came up to me and said this is a friend of the man he had come to see and he said he needs to stay in the infirmary and i thought great that means that Three of Dave's friends are staying in the infirmary. So I went up to the infirmary to fix a place for this man to stay and said to one of the women that was up there that another friend of Dave's had come. And he he said, oh, who is it? And I said, some guy named Butch Freeland. She said, Butch Freeland? I said, yeah. (laughs) She said, I have always wanted to meet him. I said, Really? Why? <laughs> it's not that impressive. <laughs> and she began to tell me all these things about the man I eventually married. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. So, I mean, he, had, he was a pilot. He loved Jesus with his mm-hmm. whole heart. He had ethics. He was funny. Um, I was impressed. And then he went around and fixed everything in the infirmary that hadn't worked in the last years. That's a selling point. That was a big point. But mostly it was just his commitment. Well, his commitment to Jesus, but he was an interesting person. Mm. And for me, I knew if I ever became interested in anybody, 
he had to be somebody that would keep me from being bored. Mm. And 49 years later. 49 years later, I don't, still... From the little I know about you and Butch's story, I don't think you've been bored. I have not, no. <laughs> All right, I have my first edit alert of okay. the season, okay. and we're like we're like six episodes in or something, and I don't, I don't even know. Maybe Hang we're on seven. to your seat, everybody. No, but you're, we're, you're talking about kind of like judging a book by its cover. You yes. Know? Um, so a couple of years ago, my neighbor across the street, and again, I always say this, I have like five stories. I may have shared this on the podcast before. It's possible. It's possible. But, um, but it bears repeating. So a couple years ago, um, our last name is Denny. And there's a dentist that's on the on Arapaho right behind right behind our house that's Mark Denny, and uh, one of my older neighbors that doesn't know us well like most of our neighbors know us pretty well, um, but she doesn't know us well. She she stopped me and she's like, Jessica, is your husband Mark Denny the dentist? And I started laughing out loud <laughs> because if you've seen my husband, um, do you? Well, you have, but my husband is. One of the drummers at church, he is not the black one with dreadlocks. That's Laura's husband. Mm-hmm. But he definitely doesn't look like a dentist. No, no. he doesn't. And he I, I like laughed and I said, oh, well, he, I was like, do you, have you met Kyle? I was like, or, he doesn't, he doesn't look like a dentist. And she goes, I don't think you can look at somebody and tell if they, they're a dentist. And I was like, yeah, but you can look at somebody and tell that they're not a dentist. <laughs> And my husband's not. I also I feel like Kaylin would not be mistaken for a dentist. Pass, well, I don't think he would pass for many professional roles, but it, he is. Yeah, and oh, Kyle. I don't know. He might. Yeah, he, talk. But you've talked to him. You gave him a tour of your house. Yes. Once Kyle. You to Kyle him. also doesn't look like a dentist no, for sure. But, he doesn't. And in, in any case, but he has he has he's lots of wonderful redeeming qualities. And he's kept your interest, like and Butch he has kept, kept my yours. interest, like he Butch has. has kept yours, even though we don't have forty nine years of marriage behind us yet. So he came and stayed in the infirmary, and so did he ask you on a date? In oh that heavens, time? no! He hardly would even talk to me. Um, he said I scared him to death. Uh, but uh, with your imposing five two figure, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was interested in the navigator ministry because, um, like I said, I had been taken to church, but I had no idea what a Christian family was supposed to look like. I had wonderful mm-hmm. parents, but they, um, it could be tumultuous at times, mm. um, and I knew that. That probably wasn't what it was supposed to look like, but I didn't know what that was supposed to look like. Their marriage could have some contention or just the whole oh, family? Oh, yes, their marriage could have a mm-hmm. lot of contention. My um, my mom was, um, I'm not sure, well, <laughs> the way my brother described her is she's a hell of a woman, but not much of a lady. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> You just didn't want to get in her way. Uh, she was the director. I think that might be in the title. I love it. It's great. She was the director of public health nursing in the mountains of East Tennessee, Upper East Tennessee. She was. Um, she had a huge sense of justice mm. and a heart as big as an ocean. But she was a fighter, mm. and um, not always the easiest woman to get along with, but. Um, definitely someone who made her made an impression, mm. and uh, I had one 
run in one exposure to the Ku Klux Klan. They tried to burn a cross on our property because of something my parents were wow. doing, and she took her shotgun out and shot all <laughs> over their heads and called them all names and told them she wouldn't miss if they didn't get off her property. So that was my mom. So life could be really kind of scary sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, ethical, yes, but peaceful, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, was, um, it could be wheels off. Wheels were definitely off, lots of times. And correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes I think that can be confusing when someone feels like a, a good person and does pursues justice and, and does the right thing. Um, and it can to me it can make Christianity more confusing um, when I, I want to see the reason behind that. Like where does that justice come from? Where does that where what 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 gives that um, pursuit meaning? Yeah, I um I never thought of it as being of confusing it with Christianity. They were not antagonistic to Christianity. They just didn't have time. Mm. Um, so she just had a strong sense of internal justice. She had a strong sense of internal and external justice. Mm-hmm. Yours and hers. <laughs> <laughs> she had space for all that. Uh, but, um, and he was a scholar. Your dad. A, yes. And, very quiet and that's a whole nother story which is very interesting but I won't take you into that right now. So did they how did they feel about you pursuing faith and that becoming central to your life? They were fine with that. That was not a problem. Um, Well it was a problem for my mom at first because she thought that I was going off into some cultic Mm. Uh, experience but my dad really connected with Butch and uh, and he and he was encouraging in my faith he just um, didn't have an overt practice of his own Mm. Um, Uh, no no, go ahead I was going to say where in in your in your years of faith have you seen what stands out is God showing up in a really big way. You were going to ask the same question I was going to ask, or something similar. Yeah. Probably a time in my life when I saw, experienced God in a way that I have never before nor since, was um, we had difficulty having children. Mm. So I had had a lot of um, infertility issues that were not diagnosed until after we lost the fourth pregnancy mm-hmm. little boy. And one doctor said, you have to be a DES daughter. <clears throat> that was diesterstilbestorol, a drug that was given women in the 60s. But we f- were able to find out that my mother had participated in a national drug study. Mm-hmm. And so even though I was much older than most DES daughters, I was a DES daughter, which had caused all of these problems. Um, So after Ian was born, and I was told I would probably never get pregnant again, I was at that point 34. And um, 
When I lost the first pregnancy, the doctor comforted me with, you're young and hear the statistics of women that lose mm. their first pregnancies. So I, I thought, well, I shouldn't be worried about this. I, sh- I mean, I should just ignore this and go on with life. And no one was talking about this at the time. No. I mean, women miscar- weren't sharing no. their stories. And miscarriage was just miscarriage, and you just mm. moved on. Um, nobody said, it's okay to be really sad. Mm-hmm. The fact that I almost died mm. and... Uh, then six weeks later, hemorrhaged again and had um, really almost died um, because they couldn't get a blood match and I was alone and Butch was at sea and it's a, that's a long story. But anyway, it was I had gone through those three other experiences thinking I should not, they shouldn't bother me, but it just happened. Mm-hmm. And, and having babies was just not something I was going to be good at. But when we lost Ian, um, I was in a Catholic hospital, and I didn't want to see him. I wanted to move through the pregnancy, through that loss, just like I had all the others. And he was, this is the son that was born at 24 weeks. Yes. And um, the nuns, praise God for them, they said, Mm -hmm. you must see your baby. So they made me see him, made me hold him, made, uh, had us name him, and bond with this little person. Mm. And so they, they gave me the, the freedom and the encouragement to grieve. So f- for the next year, I did. Mm. And um, I, there were many different things. We went to some support groups, but they weren't helpful to me because I just needed God to speak into my heart. Mm. And he did that in ways that I, I, it wasn't like I had some reading plan or I had some therapy or I had anything else. It was just that God supernaturally met me every day into Mm. my heart. And there was a healing that took place to the point that I felt I knew God loved me in a way I had never felt before. My faith was strong, but it was an intellectual faith more. And after that, it, there was an emotional component to it. Uh, a dearness of the a Lord. A dearness mm-hmm. of the Lord. And um, so that was a, that's the biggest. And how ahead of yeah. their time for those nuns to encourage you to grieve and connect to Ian and say goodbye and to have those experiences. I mean, I just that that's kind of miraculous. And I'm sure that that's why now um, I'm very motivated to use the art in the healing process mm-hmm. and help people walk through grief and walk through trauma using art walk through the leftovers of trauma. And Don, you did not have an easy experience when you eventually had a child. No, no, no. I did not expect to ever be pregnant. And uh, God is such a sense of humor. Um, the first doctor who had told me the statistics became my neighbor. That was in California, became my neighbor in Norfolk, Virginia. And so he was my physician again in the Naval Hospital. And um, 
he wanted to encourage me and get me into fertility treatments to try and have a baby, and I said, I'm not interested. And then out of the blue, I was pregnant, and he was, um, he lived down the street, so I went to him and said, told, gave him the news. <laughs> he didn't give me any. And uh, he stayed up all night researching ways that, to help you sustain the to pregnancy. help me oh, sustain wow. this body, this baby, and um, God just brought a miraculous doctor, another doctor named Dr. Charles Cottington, who eventually became the head of Mayo. Oh wow! Um, brilliant men into the equation, and I was well cared for. But when I found out I was pregnant with Joseph, I literally walked around the block and cried because I thought I don't want to do this again. Mm-hmm. I cannot do this again. To lose another mm-hmm. baby. To lose another baby. And Butch was getting ready to go to sea. So um, at four weeks, they restricted my pregnancy. At 12 weeks, they stitched him in, and I was on oh, complete wow. bed rest. Um, and my husband was gone. Oh, <laughs> word. Um, but the people from our church and the people from Young Life, we were on Young Life Committee, really gathered around and cared for me and... Um, then Butch came home, and the next week, um, my my water broke at 26. At, uh. well, then I was 24 weeks, and I thought, I, it was a numbness. I thought, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this again. And I went to the hospital, and Dr. Cunnington said, a baby can live without amniotic fluid. We just need to keep the infection down. Mm. So they kept him in utero for two more weeks and uh, then took him to C-section because I got very, very sick. And um, he stayed in the hospital about two and a half months. And that was that. Oh, my gosh. I bet you were a ball of nerves bringing him home. No. (laughs) No, because... Um, by then, we had practically lived at the hospital, mm-hmm. but I wasn't nearly as subjective or objective as I thought I should uh, thought I would be as a nurse. Um, but by the time we got him home, I felt more equipped. And of course, he had a monitor, and he had, you know, things that had to be done. And um, he did a rest three times. Oh, my word. And I'm to, just a ball of nerves, even though it's already <laughs> happened. I had to resuscitate him. Resuscitating your own baby is not an easy process. Wait, that was when you, once you brought him home? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, my, my word. Because when the monitor would go off, usually it was loud enough that it would jolt him and he would take a breath. But we were in the process of leaving the Navy and moving from Norfolk to Baltimore. Butch was already in Baltimore. I was by myself. Um, the first time it happened, we were both so tired, Butch and I, and he was sleeping in another room, and neither of us heard the monitor until it was on full blast like a fire engine mm. siren. And he, by that time, he was not responsive at all. Blew around his mouth, blew in his fingernails. Um, so that was n- the first time. The next two times were just... And did had they, he not had a monitor, he would have been a crib death. Did mm, they, they, just because he was a pre, so premature, mm-hmm. they sent him home with a monitor because presumably his nervous system was not 
very well yeah. developed because he was and born. And they will often do that. Soon. And usually you get rid of the thing by the time they're about eight months. But he, we would go to Johns Hopkins for sleep studies and he kept flunking because he would go to sleep. <laughs> flunking his sleep <laughs> And the systems would just <laughs> shut down. So um, I'm so stressed out right now. I can't even imagine living through that. Oh, my word. Well, at the same time, I had my mom who had Alzheimer's. So it was, you know, I, I kind of... That sounds was, like a really fun time. I, I kind of just was... You went from day to day and minute to minute. And you Autopilot. did what you had to do oh and gosh. got it done. Um, but he finally got rid of it at 14 months. So it was a very long time. Oh, my gosh. I was glad to see it go. So was he. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet it would be hard to sleep. Well, after, as they get older and they start to move, you know, every time they move, the thing would... I mean, you, but just, I, I feel like I would, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I'd be watching them. (laughs) Like, well, I didn't, um, when I was very tired when he first came home and, and I had been very, very ill. I won't go into all those complications, but, um, I didn't have a lot of extra energy. So it was just mostly take care of the baby you're but just by in survival. Mm-hmm. But an interesting thing, by the time he was home and ours, or by the time I was found out I was pregnant, I was so content not having children that I wasn't even sure I wanted any. And then here I had this baby with some complications, and um, he came home, and I'm thinking, how how do I really feel about this? And one night it was three o'clock in the morning and we had to, we had to feed him through a tube um, when he came home. So you had to feed him every couple of hours cause he's still too little. Um, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night holding this little person um, and feeling this incredible joy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, he doesn't bother, this doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I'm not annoyed. <laughs> My <laughs> life is not interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to be a mom. I do want to be a mom. Mm-hmm. That's great. It feels like a blessing. Now, okay, so Mary w- was the one who told me uh, that we ought, to, we ought to interview you. Mm-hmm. Are you and Mary in a life group together? We are. Okay. We are in a life group together. So have you all known each other a long time? No. Um, we didn't know Mary until they joined our life group several years ago. So. How did you guys end up? Well, and I know that you lived overseas. Mm-hmm. Y'all were missionaries. No. No. No, no. Raytheon. Butch was in the Navy. And so in the Navy, we lived in the Philippines and in Japan and in a bunch of other states. Oh, it just seems like places where missionaries go. <laughs> <laughs> and, no. And then he retired from the Navy when Joseph was born. And um, we went to Raith- went to work in Baltimore. And then he eventually came to Raytheon. But he had um, a very special specialty. So... Um, we eventually ended up in Ukraine because the Ukrainian government needed some help with what he knew how to do. So we would, that's why we went there. But it was all industry, never. And how long were you supposed to be in Ukraine? We initially? were supposed to be there a year for him to consult. Mm-hmm. And we ended up staying 
five, close to six. Wow. And were you, were y'all involved in a ministry there? Like, were you, did you continue with Young Life or Navigators? It was just a real exciting time because you could just about shoot in any direction. (laughs) There were so many ministries going on at the, when we were there, which was between 2004 and 2010, the country was like an adolescent country. Hmm. And we fellowshiped mostly with the uh, Presbyterian missionaries, but the missionaries in the um, Odessa Obelisk all met together. There was not a lot of denominational infighting. There was... People wanted people to know Jesus mm. and grow in their faith. And there there was a freedom to move between organizations and denominations. And so... Um, that, that almost sounds biblical. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? So we, we worked with an orga- a Canadian organization called World Hope and um, helped with street kids and um, girls coming out of the orphanage, moving into a... A home, mm. and that was the first time I'd really used my art as a ministry, um, because I was doing a lot of collage at the time, and collage is a perfect picture. Where you can take trash and things other people throw away, mm. and turn it into something beautiful, um, turn it into a piece of art, and so it was a visual picture for them, and. They liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. We also did a lot of things with, um, it was, what do they call it? Campus Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's really Campus Crusade. Mm-hmm. And we were privileged to have a large apartment. So they had difficulty finding spaces on the campus for their meetings, so they often used our apartment. And then we worked together and created an evangelistic um art workshop where we would go for five weeks and I would teach an art principle and we would use collage as the medium and then they would share a scriptural principle and there's an art format which is a recognized French format called cruciform Mm -hmm. and at the end we would do a collage based on that and they would share the gospel wow so that was fun. Yeah. How, tell us a little bit about how you're using art in ministry now. Well, like I, I think I may have told you earlier, I went to a workshop some years ago with a man named Mako Fujimura who was encouraging artists and to use their art in ministry. And I came back to Dallas, and Dallas International University had a class um, part of their master, a master's program in world arts um, called Art and Trauma Healing. So I took the class and got involved with the Trauma Healing Institute. And then that led me to get involved with um, a women's organization called um, ASMIRA. ASMIRA um, is a ministry that serves women either in ministry or in NGOs or Uh, just dealing with their trauma and their things. And so they hold retreats around the world um, to serve women who might not have a chance to be encouraged. And I've had the privilege of going to 
with three places with them, four places with them. Mm. And I do a workshop called Caring for the Caregiver. And now I'm working on my master's certification in trauma healing. And we're hoping to bring it into our church mm. so that we will have um, an outlet to... Um, use art and the expressive arts to help our women and our people express their pain and bring their pain to the cross. Mm. How cool. Through art, through the arts. And it sounds like that's something that you've been able to do too with some of your own pain. Yes, yes, for sure. Because, I mean, you can get into all the neurology behind it if you want, but I, which I can't really do. <laughs> Um, I'm a therapist and I can't either. So it's fine. <laughs> I know, but she's a neurology nurse. <laughs> but, I mean, you know that you create certain connections when sure. you use both mm-hmm. sides of your brain. So um, the arts are just another way of expressing what's going on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes talk therapy, you, there's no, there are no words. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't get it out. You, as a therapist, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and what, what's interesting to me is that's, that's, I don't know if that's ticking off in your brain, but it's like EMDR, mm-hmm. where it, so, um, which is a, a type of therapy mm-hmm. uh, that... I'm familiar with mm-hmm. it. Open, basically opens up using both sides of your right. brain. So generally when we recount stories of our life, we use the left side of our brain in a kind of a, a logical linear sort of fashion but that doesn't that doesn't allow maximum healing sometimes Mm -hmm. because you don't fully integrate that Mm -hmm. and and so using the right side of your brain um the the emdr methods basically kind of force you to use both sides of your brain well and same with art and art is Mm -hmm. i mean that's there's writing processes and art processes that both like that just kind of make you Mm -hmm. open up your brain and when you when you write like that when you Mm -hmm. when you draw like that it's totally different Mm -hmm. well for instance i was talking today with the woman that's my mentor in trauma healing and we were discussing the writing of a lament um and then doing an art project or uh, a dance expression or another expressive art to express that lament. And by the time you do both of those things, you've really made some mending Mm -hmm. between those two sides of your brain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God's given us the wisdom and the, the science that people didn't have before. We have it now. We have some more now. Um, and he tells us we should use our use what he gives us. Mm-hmm. Well, what's so interesting is that like some somewhere back in the past that that people intuited that somehow too. Mm-hmm. Um, the the poets and the artists. Um, did you have you ever read uh, the book writing or drawing with the right side of your brain? Mm-hmm. We we had to read that for one of my writing classes. They made us read that book to kind of help us open up for uh-huh. writing. It was uh, anyway. Well, and cool. I think so so frequently, um, even in therapy, it's so easy to talk about feelings. But even when you're talk you're, when you're talking about feelings. Not always, but very rarely, 
are you feeling them? When you're, when you're engaging in art or EMDR, um, you're actually allowing yourself to feel and experience what's hurt you, um, what's excited you, what's upset, you know, just processing through, like you guys were saying, in a more well-rounded, thorough, holistic. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, I was trying to explain this to my mom the other day cause she's not a big feeler. And, um, I was saying, you know, there's such a difference between even identifying and there is power in identifying an emotion, but to couple it with experiencing the emotion and feeling the emotion and then also being able to process it. That's, that's, I think where most healing lies. And I love that you're doing that. So how, so you, na- you identified the name of the organization that you're working with now. As Mira. And so who typically comes to them? They typically um, have women who are working outside this country, um, either with an NGO or with a mission organization, um, and they hear about these retreats. And the way the lady that started this, she was a missionary herself. And her organization had their own retreats. But she said, it's difficult when your husband is the country leader to go to an organizational retreat and say, I'm really having problems with my country leader. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to create a platform for women to come and be able to really open up. And be free. And be Mm -hmm. free. So... She usually limits the number of women from one organization. And when she puts them in groups, they're never together. Uh, So that you have, and there's a limited number of women that can Mm -hmm. come. Depends on the volunteers and the space and all that stuff. And the people who serve, most of us, are we serve voluntarily. Um, But she'll have counselors, she'll have... um, spiritual directors she has people like me she has um hairdressers uh just you want to serve and Mm -hmm. um well i think that's really cool that that's something that y'all are looking at sharing with our church body Mm -hmm. well the whole idea of the trauma healing institute is to equip the church to bring the church in the local church to helping people heal I mean, there are, not everybody can go to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has the resources or the insurance or the whatever it takes. That, um, but if we could off, we can be equipped ourselves as a body. We can minister mm-hmm. to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, That's wonderful. It is. And, I, and it gives it, you know, not all the counseling I do is Christian counseling. Um but i think when i when when i have a client that is a believer and i can incorporate god in the mix <laughs> spoiler alert it's a lot more effective <laughs> <laughs> it works a lot better, better and it's so much more meaningful um and it sounds like that's what it just sounds like really thorough like just addressing it from all different angles which is well, super cool it's really um you know we start with looking at um, listening, learning, learning to listen. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to really listen to somebody? 
and then identifying heart wounds. And that's where my art comes in. Mm -hmm. We do an art project making your heart wounds and what you do with that. Mm. And then from that we move into grief and the different um, journey of grief. And um, then forgiveness and... So what do you see um, kind of this next stage of your life? Because is Butch retired? Sort of. <laughs> now, he doesn't, he, as my parent, people like to tell my parents that they don't let the grass grow under their butt. Um, like they don't sit still for long. Well, Butch retired from Raytheon in 2010-ish. That lasted about a month. <laughs> and then he was contacted by somebody to do a job and he was gone for about four years up in Indiana back and forth and he retired again and that I think that took about two weeks and then he got his real estate license so I didn't know that so now he's a realtor um (laughs) and he just and he he usually makes one or two mission trips a year somewhere he just got back from Guatemala he just got back from Mm -hmm. Guatemala um, Butch does not look like an athlete. He does not look like the Energizer Bunny, but the man never stops. And he plays racquetball and he skis and he's, awesome. uh, <laughs> he's in great shape. Um, and he still has a beard. Oh, of course. <laughs> he shaved it off once and I said, I don't think I know you. Please grow that back <laughs> It's again. like seeing a turtle without a shell. <laughs> yeah. So what do you envision for this kind of next stage of next your life? Next stage of life. Well, we're, you know... <laughs> he is about to do this whole elder thing. He's about <laughs> to do the elder thing. Um, one thing being a Navy wife teaches you is you're not... You're your husband's partner, but mm-hmm. you're not hooked mm-hmm. to them because they're gone a lot, and you have to learn to live a life mm-hmm. apart, apart from them, with them, but apart from them. So um, we're, we know we both have the gift of of hospitality and our house is kind of like um one of my neighbors says do you guys run a bed and breakfast i said yeah a non-profit one uh, because usually there's somebody staying with us or someone who needs a place to be for a while or a day or a month or a year um and we have a lot of things in our house or in our yard um so that takes time we do that together I want. I personally want to do more with the trauma, mm-hmm. mending, trauma healing, and focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the art, you know, my my art sales pay for the privilege of doing that. Mm. Um, I and I love. I do silk scarves. I design silk scarves. And for me, that is very fun because you really can't mess them up. You just have to, you can just do. I think I could find a way no, to mess you them could, up. No, <laughs> you could not. You could not. And it's very freeing um, to create something beautiful that somebody can just wear. Um, so, and I, I see myself continuing to do art, continuing to do hospitality, and I'd love to share art with younger people, children, women, 
to encourage them to use their creativity, with, no matter what it is, mm-hmm. whether it's writing or dancing. or. Well, Alicia Pearson and I have already hit you up. We're going to try to use you to do a, a painting class with our youth group girls. With the, mm-hmm. And I'm already planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've That's got fun. it on the calendar. Awesome. The junior high girls. Hey, I, just to circle back with something that you mentioned to us earlier and – um, if, if you don't want to talk about it, I'll edit it out. Uh, but you, ha- you had mentioned that you a kind of, you and Butch raised like your niece and nephew. Is that right? Nieces. Nieces. Well, my brother had. And I, I just, I think it's interesting just given your struggles with infertility mm-hmm. and then going, I don't even know if I want to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And then you. And then you end up just your home becomes bigger. Yeah. Uh, I if you don't mind talking about that, I don't mean to force you. My brother had severe PTSD from Vietnam, and so he he and his wife were divorced when his daughters were two and four. We didn't have any children, so all of our maternal, paternal, whatever instincts were poured into the girls, and Mm. his ex-wife let us have them for holidays and have them in the summer and you know we were the fun aunt and uncle and then when the oldest one um was 14 life was not looking good at all and basically her mom said can she come stay with you Mm -hmm. she said it's you guys are a juvenile home is what she Mm -hmm. said so melina came Mm-hmm. she came and um, that was a challenging time a 14 year old two years later Christy came and so we didn't really raise them from little mm-hmm. um, you were very active but in we were life. very involved in their lives it's, it's neat to me that you had an aunt that mm-hmm poured into yes. your life and then you became the aunt that, that poured, poured into, into their lives yeah mm-hmm. and um so now you have a great relationship we with have them. a now great relationship like with them amazing. yes um the oldest one has three sons her husband's a pastor Young Life Regional Director. I think you mentioned oh, awesome. to us that like that their kids are like your grandkids. Their kids are kind of you know, you know they're they're very special to us all of their kids and um, you just got back from visiting them is that right? We just got back from uh, Annapolis because great nephew number two just got accepted at the Naval Academy so oh how inducted wonderful to the academy so we were That's there really for the cool. process. So well, yeah, it's great. You guys have made an impact on many lives. And I, I know I've heard stories um, about how meaningful your hospitality and opening up your home has been. Um, when we were first married, I was given a book, and I was thinking about this on the way here. It was called Open Heart, Open Home. It was by a woman named Karen Maines. I don't remember all the details about the book, except the definition of hospitality and the difference between hospitality and entertaining mm. and entertaining you do to impress hospitality you do to serve mm. so it may look totally different if you have 
someone from a very luxurious background in your home, you will put a little different emphasis on the way you serve them. Um, but home needs to be a place where people can be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so that has been something Butch and I have both done. And then when we did our gift inventories, hospitality was you know, high on the gift list. For both of you. For both of us. And uh, uh, exhortation, another one. So. Mm. so we sort of share gifts, which has been nice. Well, it sounds like y'all are pretty intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we are, but we aren't. I mean, people find out that you have something. Y'all just say yes. <laughs> yeah, you we say, say yes. When you have a pool. <laughs> yes, you people just, come to your house Yes, too. that's right. When you have a pool, you just, you're you're hospitable whether you like it or not. But and we you get have, extra towels. You yeah. just deal with it. But I'm learning and have learned, and I'm practicing it more, how to say no. Mm-hmm. No, I cannot do anymore. Mm-hmm. I need a break. I was recently, I've, I'd been praying about that because my tendency, tendency is to say yes to everything. Um, and I felt like God was telling me, sometimes saying no to something is saying yes to something better that I have for you. Mm-hmm. And I had to give myself permission to say no to some things for myself, no to some things for my kids, um, to say yes to some other good things that he had for us. Which was hard because I like to say yes. <laughs> you know, what's funny, uh, I'll always bring it, all roads lead to the Enneagram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember when I was first like getting into the Enneagram, that one of the things with, I'm a seven, and one of the things with the sevens is it says they have a hard time saying no. And I was like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I do not have a hard time saying no at all. Because it never even occurred to me that you ought to say no to things that you do not have time or margin to do, but want to do. <laughs> so, yes. so I frequently said no to things I did not want to do. I don't get manipulated <laughs> into doing things, but I never said no to myself. Like, mm-hmm. if I wanted to do it, I'm saying yes. And it didn't even occur to me that I ought to consider saying no. Until you're cutting up chicken in the DBC kitchen <laughs> for the 50, Seder. Quartering 50 chickens. And <laughs> Don, are, are you familiar with the Enneagram? I am, and I'm a seven. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which, that doesn't surprise seven. me either. Um, I was telling Laura uh, when Don first got here, I, I met Don on Easter Sunday, and um, when I met her, I had heard about her, and I I just felt friendly towards her. Plus, I just I tend to feel friendly in general. But um, I I went to shake her hand, and it was you know that was several months ago, and people were still very timid or whatever, and it was still so, COVID. Yeah, so I I went into I went in to shake her hand, and then I like I hesitated because then I was like I'd had several people like withdraw their hand from me during COVID when I had done that, and then I felt like apologetic about trying to shake How their hand. And, yeah. How? Yes, you. and so anyway, I, I I went in to shake Don's hand and then hesitated, and then Don just hugged me. That's a very <laughs> seven, a seven move. Yes. It was a seven move. It was a total yeah, seven, seven move. move. That's, that wasn't shocking when you told me that, when you just revealed that to us. So. Well, I'm very excited um, to know you and excited well, you. for um, Butch to be an elder. I've gotten to speak with him a little bit, and he just seems really... 
these are biblical words, cool and chill. Um, <laughs> I think that's in Micah. Head on his shoulder. Probably, Isn't that in Micah 2 8? Yeah, I think it is. You'll probably never meet anybody as even. I mean, there's a depth, but mm-hmm. he has got to be the easiest man in the world to live with, which is a testimony to him because I'm not the easiest woman in the world. Really. That's Don. Yeah, I, you seem really I, difficult. Don, I, I, I have said during this past year, I am easily the, like in the Denny household, I was definitely the most difficult person to live with, like a quarantine. Like the, the Kyle and Lydia and Hank are so chill compared to me. <laughs> I it was I I was I they're was, your butch. <laughs> they were they were my butch because I was definitely not the easy one to live with. Laura, you you were the easy one to live with. I think in your house, I probably am. I will accept that. Yeah. Several Second years ago, we had to go through some <laughs> some psychological testing to deal with something, and um, we did the Myers Briggs as a family. And the psychologist comes back to us and he says, now. Who do you think your son is the most like? And I said, well, he's a little like Butch, and he's a little like me. He said, he showed us our little Enneagram (laughs) things, and my son and my husband were exactly the same. And he said, and you're the CEO. (laughs) Great, I'll take it. That makes you the boss. (laughs) You're the CEO. What, is Butch a nine? So that's, that's Kyle Denny too. Yeah. Seven is sevens and nines frequently match up. Great sense of humor. That's right. And, and, uh, there we, I, I joke, I like, I'm, I'm the balloon and Kyle is the string. He keeps, he keeps me, he keeps me tethered to the earth. Yeah. I think Kyle can be the balloon sometimes. Yeah. He can be. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, it is great to get to know you better well, and thank for you. you to share your gifts with the body. I, um, you know, we all wonder what in the world do we have to offer. And I've thought recently a lot about it really isn't what I have to offer. It's how did God gift you and how does he want to use you? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it, when we're doing that, we enjoy it. That's right. So. That's right. It gives you permission to not, I can go, I, I can um, be guilty of that same feeling. Like, I don't want to make too much of myself. What do I have to offer? I have nothing to say. But that's doubting how God has um, uniquely gifted you and how he's going to use you. So when I make it about him and not about me, it's way easier. Much easier. <laughs> Life in general. And it might be biblical. Almost might be. one might Almost. say it could yeah. be. Yeah. Well, Don, we did. We really did appreciate appreciate you coming on, especially. Uh, I don't. I. I'm not sure if it was you, Don, or one one of our other guests this this summer that was like, I'm not even sure I know what a podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> was it you? No, it wasn't no, me. No, I know what they saying. are. I <laughs> just have never so, done one. Yeah, so, <laughs> somebody was like, I'm not even sure I know what a podcast is. I was like, You'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> so, we, but we did love getting to know you, and thank you for agreeing to come on and sharing your story with us. And thank you guys for joining us on Embarrassment of Riches. Thank you.